The more we become intimately connected with and aligned with nature, the more we receive, clearly we receive these guiding impulses and follow them. And they're guiding us to do exactly what we're here to do. That's what it's all about. So so the, the highest teaching with regard to finding your own, your sense of purpose is to make an art form out and a daily practice and a way of life of following charm. Hello, I'm Matt Ringrose and welcome to Very Vedic. I'm going to be answering the questions we all have about life today using the oldest wisdom on the planet, the ancient Vedic text from India, the Vedas. They were written over 6,000 years ago with one purpose, to help us. This knowledge has the potential to free us from suffering and allow us to live our fullest lives. And that's why I created Very Vedic, to share it with you. I'm a Vedic meditation teacher and the founder of Bondi Meditation Centre. And this season, I'm joined by my student, Anna. Together, we explore relationships, love, feelings, finding a sense of purpose, and basically anything else that comes up from the Vedic view. If you're keen to learn how to meditate, or you have a question you'd like answered, DM me on Instagram at Bondi Meditation, or email info at bondimeditation.com.au. Okay, here we go. Okay, well, we were just saying Hello. how we're slightly <laughs> nervous start. about this one, aren't we? Yeah, Suddenly, weirdly. randomly nervous. Because we like, did, haven't been the last ones. Because we thought we were nothing. Then we did a couple that seemed all right. Yeah. And now we... Have an attachment to doing well. <laughs> we've got to deliver something. All right. How are you going, Anna? <sighs> yeah, I feel really nervous randomly. Oh, yeah. Like, I don't think I've actually been properly nervous for these. Okay. Um, but yeah, here we are. Here we are. Yes. So what's worked so, well so far is that you've kind of talked about what you feel like talking about. Mm. And then we've, we've let that flow. So we go for that again. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So what's so, going on? I mean, yeah, this is, I feel like this is probably a big one. Oh. But um, I, over the past kind of week, I've been noticing, paying particular attention to joy. Yeah. And when I'm in joy and seeing other people in, in joy, in what feels or it looks mm. like pure joy. Mm. So it's kind of just got me thinking, like, mm. how important is joy in mm. the Vedic worldview? Mm. How does one attain joy? Mm. Like, how much emphasis do we put on joy? It, or is that just an attachment if we put emphasis it's on joy? It's a good stroke. <laughs> great question. Actually, I'm just going to promote it to just great. Cool. Fact. It's a great question yeah. um, for so many reasons that hopefully we'll explore now and become clear. So, look, ultimately, joy, happiness, fulfillment is the goal. Yeah. Mm. All of this, um, all of the work and the understanding of the systems, the meditation, the correcting the mistaken intellect, all these things we're hoping are going to give us... Um, an experience which is the pinnacle human experience and the pinnacle human experience is to experience ourselves as fulfillment as being which is inherently a beautiful feeling 
So to move through and beyond any of the clutter of the subconscious, which can bring with it uncomfortable feelings of fear or anger, and start to experience the very essence of ourselves beyond all that, which is never going to be scared of anything because there's nothing outside of it and all fear is based on the sense of other. And it's never going to be unfulfilled because all sense of unfulfillment or lack of fulfillment is based on the idea of needing something outside of the self. But if everything's inside the self, then fulfillment is a done deal, right? So, in other words, when we reach the highest states of enlightenment or we move through these higher states of enlightenment, there are loads of nice things which we start to experience. Um, We experience, as I say, a sense of fulfillment, a lack of fear, an intense experience of joy and love. And the joy and love in particular um, starts to become um, a very palpable, powerful and real experience when we move into what's referred to in Vedic circles (laughs) as God consciousness. So this is a fairly or a very advanced state of enlightenment where we start to detect the divine in everything around us and we also start to experience so we start to experience um a kind of heavenly beauty or holiness or godlikeness in all things all forms and all phenomena and this experience creates in us a sense of love a sense of devotion to that thing, which is the divine. So this is described as being a very, very beautiful experience and one in which joy is the baseline. Um, So I'm just giving you a few little kind of snippets there of some of the destinations we might move towards. And along the way, as we become more aware of ourselves and experience ourselves more as consciousness and the world from that place and less from the small self with its needs and its sense of lack, then we start to experience a more fluid and consistent sense of joy. So Sounds good. So it's all good, yeah. Um, but why I say it's such a good question is because, like, to summarise all those words, <laughs> I'm basically saying, yeah, the idea is to feel more joy, yeah? But along the way, it can be very confusing, because we don't always feel joy on the spiritual road. Um, in fact, we can feel worse. We can feel the worst we've ever felt in our lives as we progress into higher states of consciousness. And how confusing is that? So it's really important to have this conversation, which is not always had. You know, you'll go through certain retreats and um, or kind of um, certain schools of thought and it's all about, you know, you'll become this enlightened person. You'll experience more joy. You'll be a, a light shining to inspire everyone. Um, and just people being near you will make them feel better. And this is all possible and so on. Um, but when you don't always feel like that, you can start thinking you're doing something wrong. That you're flawed in some way. Broken even. Um, so, so what's happening there? Um, What's happening there? Or let's just give it like a a headline. The headline would be, for this little part of the talk, 
how well you're doing, you could put in brackets spiritually, is not always reflected in how well you feel or how good you feel. Wow. Another way of putting it could be um, your state of mind does not always reflect your state of consciousness. That's massive. Mm. So as you um, do this work and have the intention to move in this direction, you're meditating, listening to the truth in the forms that resonate with you, and all those things, you'll be evolving. You'll be moving forward. And joy is the inevitable destination. But along the way, there's a few stops on the st- few stations, <laughs> misery station, depressed, depressed-en. It's a place in England with a slight twist on it. Um, <laughs> anxiety. Anxiety station, um, self-loathing anger. station, anger station. All these like little stops along the train route to joy. Or big of stops. <laughs> yeah, some of them are very big stops. Very and some crazy. of them, it seems like the train has broken down there and you're never going to leave. <laughs> Yeah. Um, So the natural inclination is to assume that if you're feeling bad, you're doing bad. You're getting something wrong. But it's not the case. It's not always, and this is another big statement, a bit of a weird one, but really important one. It's not always relevant for you to feel good. Funny idea, but it's not. It's not always relevant in your evolution for you to feel good. Because the system seems to be set up in a way where the most motivating thing for a human is to feel uncomfortable. And we, because we, we feel uncomfortable, and the mind's setting is to always look for better and more comfort and more happiness. If it feels uncomfortable, it really starts working. Like you get all the mind's resources trying to find a way to feel happier. And if it's running out of ideas in the relative world and ways it can organise things, and none of that seems to be working, then finally it gives up and we transcend the mind. And we transcend the mind and start to access different states of consciousness in which the mind operates differently and we find solutions and ways of moving through our blocks. So what I'm saying is that just breaking it down into what's really what really happens when we um, as we start to progress um, ideas in us attachments ways of perceiving things those start to be ejected so there's lots of different ways of looking at this but let's look at it on the level of energy um, so let's say we have a certain frequency in our body because we do. Um, and at that, and as we go into different states, higher states of consciousness, that frequency becomes higher. The vibrations become faster, if you like. Um, when we're in a lower state of consciousness, um, lower ideas can coexist in that lower vibrational field. So, you know, this is kind of, I suppose, in the sense, the idea where ignorance is bliss comes from. Um, Because as long as we're in a lower state, we don't feel the lower ideas as particularly uncomfortable. See what I mean? Okay. They coexist reasonably comfortably because the the vibrations match in some way or are close to matching. Then as we move into 
higher states of consciousness through meditation practice, through listening to wisdom, through eating maybe, though not compulsorily, a vegetarian diet, all these kind of things it might involve, or having some sort of Ayurvedic purification treatment maybe, in the Vedic kind of sphere. Um, as we move into these higher states of consciousness, we have a higher frequency. And in that higher frequency, the lower ideas, the lower attachments can't coexist comfortably. So they start being removed. And as they're removed, we feel that uncomfortable energy leaving. Um, so let's say we're removing a lot of fear because fear is now recognized as fallacious, as a false idea, because we're starting to experience ourselves as one thing, yeah, as part of the one thing. And we're starting to experience on some level that there's nothing outside of self. So fear now is not possible. It's a mistake. But we have lots of, of those ideas about fear within us. And as they're released and we're moving into fearlessness, we can feel an acute onslaught of fear. See? Yeah, I've definitely felt that. So, so that's one example. And if we were to look on a slightly different level, which would be kind of like, um, but no, still in the energetic level, um, as we move through the different chakra points, um, and we start to clear those chakra points, we'll get them spinning more freely. These are energy centers in the body. Around those energy centers are said to accumulate um, dense amounts of stress associated with that particular chakra point. So as you move through one and get it spinning freely, there's lots of old stress comes up in those moments. So kind of like in milestone um, spiritual developments, we often have the greatest level of challenge and discomfort around them. And I found all this very, because I've definitely had experiences of, you know, don't want to be too much of a martyr here, too melodramatic, but certainly had very challenging experiences in my spiritual journey. So it's very helpful for me to find this out and to find out, for example, that many of the great ascended masters um, kind of the most holy people, the most revered spiritual figures in our history have had nervous breakdowns, <laughs> um, have felt extreme discomfort. A classic and really important one being Buddha. Buddha is said to have felt on the night before he received or attained complete enlightenment under the Bodhi tree, he said to have felt like every bone in his body was breaking or was being broken and that he was full of demons. And this was the most challenging experience of his life. Next morning, oh, completely enlightened, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, so that's interesting. St. Francis of Assisi was said to have had very strong, um, very problematic mental health issues. Eckhart Tolle, in the introduction to The Power of Now, talks about the fact that he was basically on the verge of some sort of, was having some, something, a very depressive episode, complete despair. And it was in that despair that he's, he kind of found his um, gateway into enlightenment. So it's par for the course, basically. Um, it seems to be. doesn't mean that everyone will experience, you know, it depends on your karma, it depends on where you're at in the process. But quite often, particularly a sudden 
upsurge or a sudden kind of steep up curve in enlightenment or in consciousness seems to be accompanied by a sudden upsurge in challenges. Fun. Hmm. But the good news is that it's a correlated upsurge because as the challenges are upsurging, so is your capacity to handle them. So you could have a challenge that arises now, which you feel pushed your edges by, but you manage to surrender to and just get over and grow from. And if you'd had that challenge, let's say, a year ago, that may well have fried your nervous system because you weren't prepared at that stage for that amount of energy to move through the system. That amount of, for example, kundalini awakening to happen at that time. But nature knows and generally provides <laughs> um, if we're following um, a kind of a supportive, nurturing practice with a teacher to help us, then we can strengthen the nervous system, purify the system, um, establish ourselves enough in being to have some space around the experience to reduce its intensity a bit, and also understand what's happening intellectually to not resist it too much. And therefore, we can have an experience where we can manage to get through that. Whereas um, some people, without doing enough foundational work to increase their ability to accept things, to understand what's happening, and to have a nervous system capable of conducting the forces involved, can be suddenly very overwhelmed and freak out and can take them quite a long time to recover from it. So they might not be able to kind of let those stresses come up and out. Yeah. It, it might be that though they, those people, mm. I have been one of those I've, people. By the way, by the way dear am, listener. So I don't want to say those people because I'm I one I have been one of those people <laughs> <laughs> as well. I do um, the nurturing practice with a teacher on hand and still experience a lot of this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is, it, is it possible that if you're kind of, nervous system isn't prepared and and you're not prepared to be in a situation of kind of objectively looking at everything that's coming up rather mm. getting com mm. rather than getting completely involved with it yeah that that you aren't able to let go of all that stuff that it kind of mm. could recycle yeah this is this is said to be the case um that you recycle the stress by it having effectively by having such an emotional effect as it's leaving um, and also that your nervous system can get very tired by the whole okay. process and start to work less efficiently, leaving you feeling, for example, maybe high levels of anxiety, ungroundedness and confusion. So, um, so if this is happening to anyone who's listening, we'll provide um, in the notes of this podcast a few good points of contact for, if you like, if you're experiencing a spiritual crisis. Um, yeah, if you're um, overwhelmed, confused, there are different places more and more all the time uh, that you can contact and we'll put some emails and phone numbers on the podcast notes. Great. I think it's such an important, empowering thing to know that it, to, to be in it and to know that you're 
in that situation mm. Mm. to to be like, okay, I'm in a situation where stress is getting released. Mm. I kind of just need to sit through this and it will come up and out. Yeah. Even just having that resource of knowledge around it, it mm. feels so important and to also, know that it's going to be okay and probably better than okay Yeah, soon. exactly. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, it's ultimately... Um, it's a purification process. But of course, there are points at which in the purification process, it can feel like and it can be a mental health problem. And so where would we say that begins and ends, that kind of situation? I suppose where it starts to, um, where it starts to get in the way of you enjoying your life or being useful or functional. Um, but it, that's, again, just a term and even if it is, and if it, if it if it is a mental health issue, um, or we're starting to put it into that category, I suppose the question might be, what do you do? What do you do about that? Um, and there are lots of different things we can do. So, um, and I tried all of them in my. So you can call it, you know, when you have these experiences, sometimes referred to as the dark night of the soul. It's a classic example. Um, a kind of term for it. Um, yeah, so you can um, obviously do talk therapy, see people to talk to. And if you can find a psychologist with a spiritual understanding, and they're a rare commodity, um, but they are becoming, again, more prevalent. There's more appearing. So if you can get a good recommendation or find a good um, psychologist or psychoanalyst with a spiritual understanding, that's, that's a very good thing to have. Um, there are things you can do for your body. So this is now from the Ayurvedic perspective. You could get some body work or body support um, through visiting an Ayurvedic doctor. Um, you can go and see your GP. And this is an interesting thing, isn't it? Go and see your GP. Um, and the GP might say, and probably will say, depending on what you say, um, if you're in enough of a state, they might say, how about getting on antidepressants or something like that? And it may surprise you to hear that I wouldn't remove this as an option either. Um, people get very concerned um, and say, and everybody has their own choice, of course, but talk about the fact that they don't want to do anything unnatural, something chemical like that. Um, and, you know, that it's, you don't want to do it natural, naturally. And that's good. Um, and it's a good intention to have. Um, and antidepressants, for example, have, you know, bad reputation in some cases, but they also can save lives. And they're just over-prescribed in some cases. But in some cases, they can be very, very useful. Um, so it's a bit like the analogy of the, um, the man who's dying on the desert island of thirst and he's there and he's marooned and um and a boat comes and they say come on mate you can get on we've got loads of water get on here and he goes no thanks god's coming to save me i'm just gonna hang here and then uh next day the helicopter comes it's dropping down the rope ladder and saying come on we've got lots of cold water and food come on let's take you we're here to rescue you and he goes, no thank you god's coming to save me and then next day he dies arrives at heaven god's there and uh and he says what are you doing i was waiting for you and you you forsaken me, however. <laughs> you didn't bring. He goes. I sent you I a there. sent you a bloody boat and a helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the idea is we use all the things we can to help get through these experiences. 
Um, and it can be quite good not to be, uh, to be um, realistic about it and not to be too perfectionist. Um, but yeah, so it's an interesting question. It took us on a... Big journey. Big journey, yeah. Well, I think like, you know, the conversation around mental health mm. is really important to have mm. these days. Or maybe it was always important to have, yeah. but you know, it's a more prevalent conversation now and mm. I think for good reasons when you look at the statistics. Yeah. A bit concerning. Yeah. Um, and I think the more people, now we're on an upsurge of consciousness and conscious and spiritual practices, um, it's a more and more relevant conversation to have um, because the process, as we've discussed, whilst ultimately being very positive and moving us towards greatest states of happiness and joy along the way, um, can make us feel worse. And that can be very confusing. And uh, so it's good to have these conversations. Mm, fab. Okay, well, did we talk about how ways in which we can attain joy? Yeah. Ah. Yeah, that's a nice. That's a nice way. Let's go there. Let's go back to the light. Let's go back. Yeah. So well, ways the, the to the darkness attain... is very important as well. But... Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, ways to attain joy um, without mm. getting attached. Yeah. Okay. So there's one very simple instruction for ways to attain joy. Um, fundamental instruction, and that is to go out into the world and be kind and loving to life in all its expressions. It is the giving of love and the giving of kindness which is the most fulfilling and joy-bringing thing that exists. And why is that? Because the world reciprocates and rewards us for doing what it wants us to do. And going back to this idea of the world, the universe as an organism, what makes the organism healthy and happy is collaborative cells <laughs> within the organism, all working together for the overall health and happiness and thrivingness of the overall organism. Um, so when we start to um, fall into that um, that understanding, we start to we start to have that sense of what it is we should be doing, what our particular specific set of skills has been given to us for, because we all have a unique set of skills to perform some role in service of the organism of the world. Um, so, when we find joy arises particularly, is when we're doing the thing which we're here to do, yeah, the specific thing which makes best use of our skills in some level of service to others. This is when joy, bliss even, can become a very consistent or even permanent state. So another way of talking about this would be to say when we're doing our dharma. Have you heard of that expression? Dharma? Yes, yeah. Have we talked about it on the, on the series before? Dharma. No, I don't think so. Okay. So dharma is, um, is it can be translated in lots of ways, but the way that's easy to understand is it's our purpose. Um, the thing which we're here to do. And um, 
meditation can help us find that purpose by moving us beyond um, our individual agendas, as we're talking about, individual, if you like, private agendas of meeting our own bodily impulses all the time and starting to have an intention for and an interest in meeting the wider agenda of the universe, which is um, contributing towards the evolution of ourselves and others. And um, so, yeah, as we start to find we're doing those things, um, there's a natural sense of joy. So joy seems to sing and come alive as we connect with all elements. So connection brings joy. And if we are connecting and performing our role, somehow we naturally seem to light up the circuit of life mm. where we feel a natural, subtle, um, but still powerful connection with all things because we're in collaboration, in cooperation, we're working as a team. Just think of that experience you have when you win as a team, how that joy is so powerful and how you win on your own. It's good, right? It's a beautiful thing. But somehow there's a sense that there's an underlying truth in life, I believe, that an experience shared is even more powerful and even more joyful. So, um, yeah, so connection, I think, is the, the theme we're moving into here. It with, can I ask a question with Dharma? Yeah. Hmm. If you don't know what your Dharma is, yeah. and I think I would speak for a lot of, I think I would speak for a lot of people yeah. saying that, uh-huh. you know, it, it, it's unknown. Mm-hmm. Um, is it just a matter of, I mean, of course, there's meditation and then is, is it experimentation on top of that? Mm. Just trying lots of different things? Yeah. So it comes back to podcast one in the series, which if you haven't listened to, have a go, because we laid down some foundational ideas um, around Vedic knowledge. And one of them was about following charm. Um, yes. Remember that? So, yeah, so following charm is the um, charm is the navigational impulse given to us by nature to lead us to our dharma. <laughs> charma dharma. Charma dharma. <laughs> so, yeah, so... Um, the more we become intimately connected with and aligned with nature, the more we receive, clearly we receive these guiding impulses and follow them. And they're guiding us to do exactly what we're here to do. Hmm. That's what it's all about. So, so the, the highest teaching with regard to finding your own, your sense of purpose is to make an art form out and a daily practice and a way of life of following charm. Now, like all these teachings... The highest teaching can sometimes need ladders leading up to it. Because along the way, you might say, well, yeah, but I don't know if I'm really connected with nature. And therefore, can I really rely on these signals? And my mind seems to scramble it all up. And I don't know what to do. And I can't make any decisions. So while you're refining your experience of and um, execution of following charm, you can ask yourself a question. That's what we do. We bring in the intellect, kind of help along a little bit. And the question I might ask you if you were, are you looking for your dharma, Anna? I think um, in terms, on a, on a more specific level, probably. Yeah. okay. As in, like, I know the things that light me up. I mm. know, mm. you know, I, I have, I know the things that bring me intense 
joy. Mm, yes, yes. So that's perfect. So that's literally. I guess that is it. it it's probably it. about formulating that into a. It, it feels to me that it's about getting a bit more niche with it. Maybe. But you're exactly right. You're on, definitely on the right line. So the question I'd ask anyone who's looking for their dharma to identify it is what fulfills you most? What do you find most fulfilling? You know, are you what asking would you, me that? Because well, you're looking at me like you are. <laughs> not necessarily. Okay. Um, what would, if I asked you how, what achievements you'd like to have achieved in, say, three years, what things that you could report would really ring your bell? What would really move the needle and make you think, yes, that's good, that's really fulfilling for me? And on the other hand, what other things, which we may chase kind of blindly without really thinking about it, wouldn't really do that? You know? Um, I heard an Alan Watts yeah. video a few years ago and I, uh-huh. I just thought it was really potent. It's He talks about what if, um, like, take away the idea of earning money from something mm-hmm. and just allow yourself to see what, what comes up mm-hmm. because I think thinking that it has to be a job that earns money, which mm. while that would be an amazing thing, mm. can often sometimes put up some fear blocks. Yeah. And I found listening to that video really helped me to actually free flow with what was in my heart. Exactly, exactly. So it's almost like you want to lie down, close the eyes, it's one way you could do this, and have someone ask you what you'd like to do and explore it with you a little bit. Um, and keep at the very high end. So whenever you go into like a practical drawback or but, you just come back up to the highest level and find out what it is you actually want to do. And then once you've established that, you can allow inspiration to come in to formulate it. Now, along the way, you know, there can be practical considerations, of course, and it's not, we've got to like eat and drink and pay a rent in Bondi or wherever you live or could you or something if you're over here. And so in other words, we need, we need something, some sort of lubricant to help us socially live a dignified life and move around and so on. Um, cause we're not in a monastery here. Um, we're not in an ashram. We're not having our needs met. So we need to find a way of meeting our needs. So this can be confusing again. You think, well, I want to, I don't know, teach meditation, but I don't know if I'll get enough students and, what about my rent? You know, I've got to pay my rent. So some people are saying, well, no, just, you just got to believe in it and go for it. Yes. Depending on how powerful a state of consciousness you're in and what's relevant for you and your karma, that may well be the case. But equally, not because you're doing anything wrong or that you're not worthy of being a meditation teacher, you may not get enough students. So what we bring in there and what can be useful in some situations is a funding mechanism and the funding mechanism is a job you do which isn't necessarily your dharma it's not the reason you're here but it provides you with the money for you to explore at least your dharma and move into a place where that can start to become more supportive of you and hopefully facilitate an overlap at some point where you can go and do that thing full time or at least explore ways that that can actually make you money yeah i i Love Elizabeth Gilbert. I don't know if you know her. She's kind one of, of my favourite like authors. Yeah. She wrote Eat, Pray, Love. And oh, yes, she talks about creativity a lot. Mm. And she talks about don't put the the pressure of having your your um, creativity supply you with mm. all 
mm. all your money. You know, yeah. especially at the beginning. And she yeah. wrote so many books before she wrote Eat, Pray, Love. Yeah. And is now doing very, 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 very well. Yeah. But while she was writing all of those books, she had a full-time job. And mm. yeah, I guess it can... Fulfilling the basic needs before, like, mm. seems like it could... It could um kind of put you in a position of lack of fear in a way. Or in a way, fear. that's right. And a, a place to actually as allow... As unromantic as it sounds. Because mm, <laughs> there's like, a romanticism around being like, just go do it and... It's like a, yeah, it's like a relationship. They can thrive more when there's less pressure put on them. Your relationship with your dharma could uh, thrive more because you're doing it for the love mm. and not trying to put it into a structure which limits its ability to evolve, you see? Can I ask you a personal question? Go for it. I feel like it might be helpful for listeners. Sure. Did you always know that you wanted to be in this position, being having running a meditation centre? No. Being a teacher? Did that take you a while to come to your, if it is your dharma? Which I yeah, I think it's my like dharma. it might be. Yeah. <laughs> it feels very dharma-ish yeah. because, and, because I feel choiceless in it. It's not like, it's literally like the, the little room you go into where you can make decisions and go different, out of different doors. I'm not allowed in that even corridor mm. anymore. <laughs> it's like, I am, this is what I'm doing. And that's often what Dharma can feel like. It can feel reassuringly choiceless. Um, so no, I, I don't even remember making the decision. It's quite odd of when I wanted to do it. All I, all I knew was that at one point I was um, following the same paradigm as most people thinking that happiness, fulfillment would come from um, acquire, acquisition, acquiring things, and then showing those things off, which would somehow give me a sense of power. <laughs> For a few minutes. For a while. <laughs> you know, the usual paradigm. Um, and I hadn't really questioned it and probably starting to wonder why that wasn't really working. And then the next thing I know, I've learned to meditate. Um, it's helping me in lots of ways. And I know I'm going to be a teacher. And it's clear. Mm. And you never look back from then? No. I mean, like, I had periods of confusion when I felt the dark night of the soul we described, actually, after I did my teacher training and during, um, which, but something fortunately propelled me forward the whole time. There was no, there was no, that door wasn't there, the other option. Okay. So I just kept moving forward and then was rewarded by feeling better. Um, and, and having, and another thing we should say about that, just to touch back on that, that stuff about the dark night and, you know, the challenges, spiritual challenges is, um, that they end up providing you with your strength. You get familiar with landscapes, which are very, very, um, important to understand when helping other human beings, you know, so you meet somebody and, and they say they're having this challenge and you say, oh, I went over that little stream. You don't necessarily need to make it autobiographical and let them know. But you basically say, yeah, there's a little rock in the middle of that stream. You can just up a couple of meters and you can just jump onto that rock and then jump over to the other side because you've been up that part of the mountain before. So it's not like you're necessarily at the top of the mountain, but you've certainly, you know, gone up a bit further than some people have. So you can give them some hope, I suppose, some hope and tips some inside tips um, and they can look at you and think oh you, he looks alright 
Depending on the day. Depending on the day, <laughs> in the time of day. Anything before 12 noon, probably a bit rough. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Matt. Thank you. See you Thank next week. I always week-ish. learn a lot in these. Me too. Yes, next weekish. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Very Vedic. Produced by Studio Offline, technical production by Podpaste, original music by Al Royale. If you're keen to learn how to meditate, or you have a question you'd like answered, DM me on Instagram at Bondi Meditation, or email info at bondimeditation.com.au. Until next time, Jay Guru Dev. Thank you.